What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Are there any real distinctions between them, or are those just cultural constructs? It seems that even broaching the subject of gender distinction has become taboo. What are we to make of the rapidly shifting gender and sexual ethics of our culture? Are our faith convictions hate speech if they differ with the cultural norms of premarital sex, cohabitation before or instead of marriage, divorce, homosexual marriage, and gender transitioning? Is the Bible archaic and simply out of touch with reality? Has Christianity become too impractical for the real world? What does the Bible say about all of this anyways? What does it say about masculinity and femininity? And how does that play out in marriage, singleness, parenting, life, and in ministry? God's Word reveals a good God whose ways are good that teaches us that men and women are equal and unique. In fact, the Gospel frees us to celebrate these distinctions, revealing the way in which we have been designed to flourish. Well, this morning we are concluding our series called Design to Flourish, and uh, we have been spending the fall on it, and this morning we are going to be looking at homosexuality. And so from the outset, I want to say um, that we're not looking at homosexuality as the super sin or a super sin at all. I want you to hear from us that 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 is not what our intention is this morning, that, that it seems tricky when you, 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 you pick something specific, um, like a theme in the Bible that's called a sin, and then you just focus on it. It can seem like you're, you're treating it as different or uh, like a super sin. And the reason that we're preaching on it this morning is because, yes, um, it is referred to in Scripture in a number of places, But the reason that it's included in this series is because we've been looking all fall at issues of gender, masculinity, and femininity. We've been looking at marriage and singleness, and we've been talking about divorce, and so we're talking about homosexuality as well because it ties into um, gender and this design for flourishing um, where that exists. I want to say at the same time that many times in the church we have made this a super sin or the super sin, and and that's wrong. And for that, I want to say sorry where that has been an experience that you may have had. Um, It's unfair, it's unkind, and it's it's ultimately unhelpful. And of course, this is more than just an issue. We're not simply talking about homosexuality this morning, um, as if it's some issue, right? And, And we refer to this a lot when we're talking about real issues that affect real people, and we want to lead with the kinds of things that Jesus constantly led with, love and grace, something compelling, something that draws, not something that pushes away. The gospel is meant to be shown and to be seen by all people so that they can see the wonder of it. And we have um, really fumbled the ball on this in the church a lot. So much so that I, I, I know a few same-sex attracted and um, homosexual individuals will be watching this, hearing this here um, this morning, but not nearly as many as we would hope because the church has often repelled those who are same-sex attracted and are homosexuals. And for that, we're sorry. And I don't think that we've handled uh, this issue like Christians a lot. And so um, I want you to hear that. I want you to hear that you are loved. I want you to hear that we care. I want you to hear that um, there is place for you in our community. Also want to attempt to do something this morning that is two things, preaching grace and preaching truth. Preaching grace and preaching truth. Far too often as Christians or in the church, we're pendulum swingers. There have been seasons and there remain uh, individuals and churches who just are on one side of the pendulum, and the side of that pendulum is truth. But truth without grace is fundamentalism. It's, It's preaching something that this is how it is, this is a sin, it is wrong, and there's not a measure of grace included in the conversation. 
Truth without grace is fundamentalism, and it's disgusting. That's never the way of Jesus Christ. Truth without grace is fundamentalism, and it simply just rejects people who don't measure up. I'm preaching you the truth. You should see the truth. Just get the truth. Live by the truth. And there's nothing attractive about that. And on the other hand, grace without truth is just sentimentality. And there are far too many people inside the church today that are capitulating to cultural norms, which is to say the only way that there can be acceptance is just to preach grace. And so what we need to do as a church is just preach grace and say, yes, it's good. Yes, it's great. We accept you because we think that it's the only way that we can be loving. But the problem is that grace without truth is just sentimentality, and we're actually offering nothing that lasts. To be overly simplistic about Pharisees and Sadducees, we, not, we want to be neither as well. The way of grace and truth avoids extremes of Pharisees and Sadducees. Pharisees are those who inst- whose instinct is to scornfully separate from a sexually damaged world, to scornfully separate from any sinner, right? That's the fundamentalist. And the way of the Sadu- Sadducee is, is that instinct just to follow the world. Oh, this is where they're going? We're going to go there. We're going to make this fit. We're going to make this work. And the way of grace and truth avoids both potholes. We want to say as well that there is another way besides affirmation or alienation. That's the narrative of our culture is we can only approach the issue of homosexuality in two ways, affirmation or alienation. We absolutely, wholeheartedly affirm this. Or we reject this, and therefore we reject you. We want to say that the way of Jesus is actually a third way. It's the way of grace and truth that doesn't make us land in one extreme or the other. In John chapter 1, in reference to Jesus, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And there's something that's almost like a paradox about Jesus where the lost, sinful, and outcast ran to him, not from him. Like, do you not just see that as you read the Gospels, that there's something about Jesus where the lost and the sinners of the day, the outcasts, the rejects, are flocking to Jesus. It's stunning. In fact, the week of the crucifixion um, paints this picture well. The religious leaders and the secular leaders collaborated together to kill him. But in that same week, there was a prostitute who washed his feet with her hair, with her tears and with her hair, and there was a thief that defended him on the cross. Like, what a paradox. And it's very simple to realize that the church has just either punted on this issue or just missed on this issue so much because we're not known Christians in culture as the people that the outcasts and the sinners flock to. The only way that the lost and the sinners and the outcasts flock to a church is that only if there's people who are such salt and light in a world that compel them and draw them in that helped them encounter Jesus who did precisely that over and over again. I take that as such a personal um, conviction. If the lost are not compelled by me, if sinners, utter sinners that we would consider sinners in our culture are not compelled by the gospel I am proclaiming, I wonder how much like Jesus am I actually being? See, in John chapter 8, there was a woman who was caught in adultery. And Jesus said this to her, I don't condemn you. There was a woman who was legitimately caught in adultery, and Jesus says, I don't condemn you. And then he says, now go and sin no more. What do we do with condemnation? I think condemnation, to condemn someone, is is really about what we do before and after we tell someone the truth. What we do before and after you tell someone the truth determines if you condemn them or not. Telling the truth, we're told, is what you cannot do. You have to either affirm or alienate. 
We say, no, it's, it's actually what we do in the midst of truth-telling. It's what we do in the midst of telling somebody what the Bible says. Do we condemn them? What do we do before and what do we do after clarifying the truth? Jesus was always the one who brought sinners near, you and me included. Jesus brings the sinner close. I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Do you see what he's doing? He's not pushing us away after telling us the truth. He's drawing us in. But far too often we are people who tell the truth and we cast people off as we do it, and that is to condemn someone, but that is also not the way of Jesus. To the woman at the well in Samaria, there was this woman, and she'd been married five times, and she she was living with a sixth man who wasn't her husband, but Jesus doesn't start with that. He gets there, but he says, do you want living water, the kind of water that'll make you never thirst again? And they start to have a conversation because Jesus knows that she is looking for soul satisfaction and she's trying to find it in man after man after man. And Jesus is saying, hey, I know where you can find ultimate fulfillment. I know where you can find deep, lasting, eternal satisfaction. Do you want that kind of water? And he extends a hand of friendship to her. He did not start with her living situation, but he started with the gospel and a hand of friendship. It reminds me of Rosaria Butterfield's story. She's a lesbian professor who was befriended by a pastoral couple and who eventually eventually came to faith in Jesus Christ. And she said about this pastoral couple, they saw the biggest sin in my life wasn't lesbianism. They saw that it was unbelief. The biggest problem any person outside of the church has is not the, their, their proclivity towards a particular sin. The biggest sin in their life is that they don't know Jesus yet. So we don't label people by a particular sin. We just want to invite them in to experience the gospel. And you know what will happen as they do encounter the gospel? They'll get to know a a Jesus who lives inside of them, who convicts their hearts while accepting them and draws them into a sanctified life where their lives can be made right with Jesus. But far too often we lead with the apparent sin And we make people feel like they need to clean it up before they've been given the power of the Holy Spirit to do the work in their life that they can't do. J.D. Greer, a pastor and author regarding condemning others, he says, you judge someone not when you assess their position, but when you dismiss them as a person. You judge someone not when you assess their position. We think that in our culture by assessing someone's position. We're dismissing them, but no, you judge someone not when you assess their position, but when you dismiss them as a person. That's judging them. And what we would say is the way of Jesus is to draw people close. It's what we do before and after we tell the truth. And I think far too often in the church, we've gotten that part wrong. Regarding this woman caught in adultery in John 8, Jesus says to this group of Pharisees and scribes, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And they all put down their stones and they walk away. Jesus is making a warning here against self-righteousness. And there ought not be a single person in the room who has any self-righteousness. In fact, what the church is is a group of people who understand, I only have one righteousness and it's found in Jesus Christ. Because left to my own devices, I am an utter mess and left to ruin. And so Jesus tells story after story in the Gospels about this kind of thing, that we should never be self-righteous, that we are never in a position to judge other peoples in such a way that we could condemn them. Jesus tells the story about a man who owed a ruler 10,000 talents. And in that day, they often only counted up to 10,000. It was like we're talking about an infinite amount here, and he owed him a day's day's wage was a talent. And so he owed him really 10,000 days of work. It was an insurmountable amount. He could never pay it back. And he pleads with this ruler, please just give me more time, even though more time would have done nothing for him. But this ruler looks down at him with such compassion and says, you don't need more time. And the reason you don't need more time is because I'm going to forgive you right here and right now of this infinite amount. You owe it no more. And the man leaps for joy and walks out of this ruler's courts and into the street where he sees a guy who owes him a few dollars and says, give me my money. I want to go get lunch. 
And he says, I don't, I, the other guy says, I don't have your money. I just need like a week. Just give me a little bit of time. I will get you your money. And it's an amount of money that he could have paid back. And he's like, no, give me my money now. And he puts him in prison. And all of these witnesses who saw this man forgiven an infinite amount in the court, now seeing him not forgive a small amount in the street, are saying, what a hypocrite. And the hearers of Jesus' parable were probably thinking this. Look, that would never happen, Jesus. That would never happen. No one who has been forgiven an infinite amount would ever turn around and call someone out for a few dollars. Nobody would do that. But to our shame, that's exactly what we've done. Do you not realize that you have been forgiven an infinite amount by a Savior who loves you and has pursued you and washes you clean, you dirty people? If, you care, if, you're, if you're characterized by disgust over other people's sins and not overwhelmed by the forgiveness of an infinite amount that God has extended to you, then you are desperately out of touch with the gospel. And to our shame, church, many of us are just desperately out of touch with the gospel. You've been forgiven an infinite amount if you know Jesus. Meaning there is no place for any Christian on the planet to cast anybody out. I just want to illustrate this a little bit by looking at Romans 1. Not the, the, the couple of verses we'll focus in on in a, a few minutes, but Romans 1, 28 to 32. And this illustrates the fact that all of us are sinners in need of grace because the Apostle Paul uses an illustration of, of, of homosexuality um, and, and then he follows it up and says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, that's just really all Gentiles at this point in Romans chapter 1 he's making a case about, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Listen to what he lists. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, Right? Those are intense things. And then they get into things that we, we are a little bit more cool with. Like, they are gossips. Right? Now half of us are in trouble. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Right? We're talking about murderers and those that broke curfew. Right? Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 1 Corinthians 6, where it talks about homosexuality, talks about all of these things. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, any greedy people in the room, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. People given to this kind of living unrepentantly will not inherit the kingdom of God. But this list that I just read that includes the acts of homosexuality leaves nobody in the room out. And we need to remember that. Right where we, this is why we can't make this a super sin, because right where we are talking about one particular issue, we see all kinds of others thrown in the mix and we recognize that we're all in the same position, every single one of us, all of us in need of lavish grace from Jesus. So all of us are sinners in need of grace. We recognize that, and we also recognize the seriousness of what's, what's being said here in this text about our sin. In Romans 1.32, it says, though they know God's righteous decree, they know what he says, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They deserve to face judgment from a holy God. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. In other words, there are those who see what the Bible says, but just don't like what it says, and they give approval to it. In 1 Corinthians 6, the other passage where I read the list, it begins this way. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Paul insists that we not be deceived about this. He assumes some will deny this teaching and argue that some forms of homosexuality are acceptable to God. But Paul is clear. Homosexual conduct leads people to destruction. And if we believe that the Bible speaks clearly, how can we not Share it plainly. The Bible is clear. 
We need to share it plainly. But as we share it plainly, we need to recognize that we wrap truth in grace. We draw people near. We do not cast them out. We condemn nobody because we're in the same sinking ship, but for the grace of God. Now, there's this whole section in Romans chapter 1. It starts in verse 18 after Paul does some introductory work in the book of Romans. But it, it, the, the remainder of chapter 1, starting in verse 18, Paul has an aim. And his aim in the first few chapters of Romans is to demonstrate that the whole world is unrighteous in God's sight and therefore in need of salvation, culminating in Romans 3 where he declares no one's righteous. Like he, nobody's off the hook. No, not one is righteous. And here in chapter 1, he says that God's wrath is revealed in this passage. We see it here because people have suppressed the truth about him and have turned to idolatry. So that's going on when we reject God and, and create idols. Idols are really anything other than Jesus, looking to anything other than Jesus for salvation, for meaning, for worth. And we see the wrath of God in this text. But you know what's interesting about the wrath of God? It's not lightning bolts. It's not him casting his fist on the earth and smiting people. Wrath of God in this particular text, Paul makes it clear the wrath of God being poured out is this. He gives them what they want. He gives them what they want. It says three times. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. When we turn to idolatry for our salvation, for our meaning in life, for our worth, God ultimately says, I'll leave you to it. And it leads us to all manner of unrighteousness. That's what Paul is trying to get across here in the text. Leon Morris put it this way, Paul is about to expand, expound a wonderful salvation, a wonderful salvation that comes right after declaring that no one's righteous to saying all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He is about to expound a wonderful salvation, but he first establishes the need for it by showing that all people are sinful. Many of his contemporaries did not agree, with the result that his message seemed foolishness to them. And many of our contemporaries do not agree with him either, with the result that his words are incomprehensible to them too. It has always seemed to most people that they are, on the whole, pretty decent people. They may not be perfect, but they have done no great wrong. Since they are conscious of no really disastrous sin, they feel that they must be right with God. But for Paul, the significant thing is not that people have met their own standard, but that they have not met God's. They have come short of his demand. They are in the greatest of danger because they are subject to his wrath. And so we see that Paul is illustrating here God's standard that is so different from ours, the one that's tempting to live by our standards, Paul is putting forward God's standard here and calling us to live by it. And so in Romans 1, verse 26, you'll see it up on the screen. Paul gets specific with the example we'll see this morning, which is this. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, Paul is referring to what seems or what goes against nature. So homosexual action is used as an illustration of idolatry, and many more illustrations are piled on towards the end of the chapter, along with other sins. And I want you to hear this. He's talking about a societal level. We need to hear that what we don't do when somebody is dying of cancer, we don't look at them and say, what did you do? What did you do against God? And we, don't, we, we can't look at people who are suffering and, and, and think that they must be super sinners. This is a societal level epidemic of sin, and the same is true of homosexuality. We ought never look at those who are same-sex attracted, those who are practicing homosexuals, and say, Wow, you especially 
reject God. Because that is not the case and that's not what is being said here. It's an indication, on the other hand, uh, other, uh, it's an indication actually that the world is not as it should be. And we also need to note that in this passage, the natural relations are those rooted in the created order of male and female and not those natural to personal preference or desire. See, we assume that if an individual is born with a predisposition to same gender relationships, then the attraction that is most natural to them is automatically okay. We, we do this. This is a, this is a narrative that, that we've encountered in our culture. But the Bible's view of original sin and everyone being born into a sin nature refutes that argument. As a result of the fall in Genesis 3, our fractured world is full of temptation to pull people towards sin, and people are born with a sin nature, which is a natural inclination to sin, which means what comes naturally to us isn't the standard, isn't what determines if it's right or wrong. Being true to ourselves is not what is ultimate, because we have a sin nature, and so what is true to us and what comes naturally to us will so often take us towards harm. Our genetic tendency towards any sin is the result of the fall in Genesis 3 and is not part of God's original design, which was completely good. God didn't make anybody with a particular proclivity towards sin. The fall ushered that in. We cannot blame God for acting on our desires either, for we are responsible for our actions regardless of the strength of the desires that helped to facilitate them. So God does not make anyone act on homosexual, homosexual desire just as God does not make, make anyone act on any particular sin that comes quite naturally to the person. Sam Albury, who's a same-sex attracted single pastor in England, who has chosen to live the celibate life, sees the plain reading of the scriptures, believes it, and so therefore, because of his same-sex attraction, being drawn to um, men, he is living a single life. And in response to the case that if God made someone that way, then it can't be sin, he says this. The nature that Paul says homosexual behavior contradicts is God's purpose for us, revealed in creation and reiterated throughout scripture. Paul's point in Romans 1 is that our nature, as we experience it, is not natural as God intended it. All of us have desires that are warped as a result of our fallen nature. Desires for things God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God has made me. To illustrate this, uh, Rick Warren, America's pastor, really, was interviewed by Ann Curry. And she said, look, if, if scientists could show, if scientists could prove that there is a gay gene, that you're, 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 you're wired this way, that this is orientation that, that you're born into, surely you have to agree that then that is right and good and, and, and should be um, supported, right? And Rick Warren looked back at her and said, no, I don't agree. And she was shocked. And he said, listen, and genetically... The way I'm wired, I want to have sex with every beautiful woman I see. I have a predisposition to seeing a beautiful woman and wanting to sleep with her. But that's not good for me. That's not God's best for me. That's not good for the women that I want to objectify that way. That's not good for my wife. That's not good for my kids. It may be what seems natural to me, but that is not the guiding light of what is true and right and good and God's way. And that is a hard word. But he's right. It has often been said, and more and more I see Christian bloggers um, using this argument and changing their mind on what the church for 2,000 years has overwhelmingly not changed its mind on, and that is the idea that the homosexuality in the Bible is not the same type of homosexuality that we're talking about today, right? Meaning sex with slaves or prostitutes or boys, and definitely not a long-term monogamous relationship. But you need to hear this. On a scholarly level, that has been widely discredited by Christian and secular scholars alike. 
We're talking about ancient Greek writings, ancient Roman writings. We're talking about the celebration of the homosexual lifestyle that goes back to this very time. And in the text, we see in 1 Corinthians 6, for example, we see in the Bible that, it, or at least in the ESV, it says um, those who practice homosexuality, but in the Greek there are two words used, and it's the passive member in homosexual acts and the active member in homosexual acts, and both are named with Greek terminology to say it's not just the one performing the action, it's the two. And Romans chapter 1 talks about them being consumed with passion for one another. This very much speaks into our present-day reality. But here's what we find, right? Here's what's distasteful about a church that simply preaches against all kinds of things. We have, we have kind of painstakingly been tried to show, as we've walked through some really difficult subject matter this fall, we've been painstakingly been trying to be consistent, which is to say, actually, the Bible holds up a glorious view of how all of these things were designed, but how all of these things are meant to work in good creation as God made all things good before the fall, and we are to look to those things as Christians and try and strive for those, and as we see God's good design, we will see that it will lead to human flourishing. And so we've said that, and so what we want to do here is put forward God's design for marriage. Again, a good design. Because it's often been said that Jesus didn't talk about homosexuality. Well, first of all, it's, it's, that's a really poor argument because there's lots of things Jesus didn't talk about. And I'm making zero comparisons to the subject matter here at all, no comparisons at all. I'm just throwing out some things that Jesus did not address. He didn't address bestiality or incest but they're wrong. And so what Jesus can do is Jesus can talk about all the things that he's against, right? He came to uphold the law, fulfill the law, not abolish the law, not one dot, right? Not one mark in the law. He came to fulfill it. He came to complete it. He came to reveal it. And so he's showing in a positive way what he is proclaiming. So there's two ways to go about it. He could, he could speak against everything that he's against and name them all, or he could speak to what he's for and what the view is, what the image is. So I could go outside with you right now, and I could begin to point out every car that is not mine. Or we could go outside, and what might be a little bit easier is for me to show you the car that's mine. So Jesus doesn't show every sin that is a no-no. Jesus points to a beautiful image, and it's actually what... Pastor Eldon preached on last week in Matthew 19. Jesus upholds God's design for human flourishing in marriage when he declares, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made the male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus goes back to created order. He goes back to the creation account and says, this is the way God made it. You want to see where sex is meant to flourish? It's in the covenant marriage of one man and one woman. And then he ups his game on divorce where they're all like, if your wife burns the dinner, you can divorce her, right? Like that was literally a, a, a conversation at that time. And Jesus ups it and says, there's no reason for divorce. Because there's no reason except for adultery, right? And, and, and the only out clause was because of your heart and hearts. Like Jesus is upping the game so much that his disciples turn to him later and they're like, like, we shouldn't get married then, right? Because what you said about marriage is so high, is, 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 is so difficult, seems so challenging, like we should, none of us should get married, right? And Jesus is like, those who can should because God made it to be a beautiful thing. But then he also goes on to talk about eunuchs. Right, those who were single and were chaste. And he said, some have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus goes on to talk about that. And he says, that's a good thing. It's a, it's a good thing to give yourself to singleness for the sake of the kingdom. If you cannot uphold, if you cannot keep, if you cannot give yourself to the image of marriage that I just referenced, that my father created it this particular way, if you cannot give yourself to that, give yourself to the celibate life. Become like the eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. So Jesus upholds this view of flourishing 
for humanity. And in Genesis 1, you see pairs of different but complementary things made to work together. And this is what Jesus is referring to. He's going back to Genesis 1 and 2. And we see in the creation these complementary different things being made to work together, light and dark, heaven and earth, sea and land, even God and humanity. And it's part of the brilliance of God's creation that diverse, unlike things, are made to unite and create dynamic wholes which generate more and more life and beauty through their relationships. God made the creation this way that complementary but different things would be put together and that they would produce more and more life. And the creation and uniting of male and female at the end of Genesis 2 is the climax of all of this. And so that means that male and female have a unique non-interchange have unique non-interchangeable glories. They each see and do things that the other cannot. Sex was created by God to be a way to mingle these strengths and glories within a lifelong covenant of marriage. So Jesus upholds that. And we see that and we want to look to that and re- and uphold that and see that as the grand vision that God has made for sex and for marriage. I want to shift gears a little bit as we um, kind of go to the back half of this sermon. Wesley Hill is another same-sex attracted man who has given himself to celibacy. He's a professor of theology in the States, and he wrote a book a number of years ago called Washed and Waiting. And the washed word refers to the text in 1 Corinthians 6 that I've referenced a couple of times. Right, it lists these sins, it lists the act of homosexuality, and then it says in verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so what, what Wesley Hill is looking to is the fact that I am not my orientation, I am not my proclivity towards same-sex attraction, I am, when I encounter Jesus Christ, washed meaning to be made clean. I am sanctified, meaning to be made holy. And I am justified, meaning to be made righteous. And this is done through Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. See, we are given power to live this new life, including an ability to repent when we hear warnings about sin and the consequences of sin. When we encounter Jesus, his Holy Spirit shows us, reveals us, warns us of the consequences of sin. And we need to remember that the power of God in our lives isn't the prize for earning our own righteousness. It's the means necessary. We need the power of God to sanctify us in our lives, right? I mentioned this when we talked about the woman caught in adultery. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. What Jesus did there is Jesus put acceptance before change. Listen to this because he knew that she would never have the power to change before she had felt the weight of her acceptance. Jesus put acceptance before change because he knew that she would never have the power to change before she had felt the weight of her acceptance. I don't condemn you. I actually love you. Now go and sin no more. See, that is the call. That is how we are washed. That is how we are sanctified. That's how we are justified. It's us giving our lives to repentance and acknowledgement. Look, when I listed all of the sins that I listed in these passages, what I'm saying is it's not those who perform those sins, that do those sins, that have done them once or twice or do them and are in the fight or in the battle. It's not talking about that at all. It's talking about do we see them for what they are, sin, and do we turn to Christ in repentance and acknowledge what he says is sin, is sin, and desire for it to flee our lives. Repentance really is acknowledging that Jesus' lordship, acknowledging Jesus' lordship in our lives and not our own. Every generation establishes a standard for what is right and wrong. They did what was right in their own eyes, Judges 17 and 21 says, and every generation since has done that, and every culture has done what was right in their own eyes. You know what that means? Is that there's a sense of morality in all of us, but the standard is our own and it's not God's. The LGBT community is very moral, but the standards are their own, they're not God's. We don't make our own sensibilities the standard. Coming to Jesus means surrendering to him and his word. And when we do, he washes us, sanctifies us, and justifies us. The issue isn't sin, but repentance. There is an accountability from the Bible that comes. And the question isn't, do you sin? 
but are you active in active ongoing repentance? The question isn't do you sin, but are you actively walking in ongoing repentance? So that's the washed piece. Nobody comes in here with any amount of baggage that Jesus will not cleanse, that Jesus will not forgive. He loves you. He pursues you. He does not condemn you. He wants to draw you in, and he will wash you clean. The waiting word in Wesley Hill's book, Washed and Waiting, is a reference to Romans chapter 8. It says in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What this is saying is, and it's in the same chapter where it says um, that God, God does all things for the good of those who love him. It's also saying that creation groans because things are not as they should be. And not only does creation groan, but our own bodies groan and yearn to be redeemed, to be fully um, resurrected. And so, like we talked about, repentance means agreeing with God about sin, but that doesn't always mean being fully delivered from that sin. So what's being referred to in Romans chapter 8 is this, this idea of the kingdom of God, of Jesus breaking in, is that there's this already and not yet. So um, Jesus has already inaugurated his kingdom, and we already experience an inbreaking of his power. If you know Jesus, you have experienced the power of Jesus, and it's the inaugurated kingdom that he has ushered in. But there is a not yet dimension also to the kingdom of God, meaning that a lot of Jesus' healing works are still to come in the resurrection of the body for ultimate healing. It's the already and the not yet for those who... Um, are miraculously healed of a disease, of a sickness. We praise God for that because it's the inbreaking of the kingdom, and Jesus can do that. But in the same way where people die from the same kinds of illnesses and sicknesses and are not healed, we recognize that, yes, they are still healed if they know Jesus because he will bring them ultimate healing in their resurrected bodies in the full inbreaking of the kingdom where everything is renewed. And the same is true of our sexuality. Yes, Jesus heals some people's sexual orientations when they come to Jesus Christ. He heals them, and they're able to have an attraction to the opposite sex and marry somebody perhaps someday. But there are others where God allows the struggle to continue in this life as long as they live so that they can be a testimony of his sustaining grace in the midst of their struggle. And this is really, truly God's normal way. He's given everybody a thorn in their flesh. He's given everybody a proclivity towards sin that we, we just do not overcome this side of heaven. And it's his grace to us. You know why? Because if the same couple of things that have just been dogging me for years, if God had miraculously healed me of those, I would be even more prideful and arrogant and a punk than you see me right now. He uses those things in me that he will not for some reason rid me of so that I can humbly all of my life depend on his grace and recognize that I need Jesus. And so this side of heaven, he does not heal every woe. He does not heal every orientation, every proclivity. He actually calls us to carry them so that we can be a testimony of a sustaining grace in the midst of our struggles, which leads us to celibacy and singleness, which I did a sermon on a couple of weeks ago. So I'm not going to rehash all of that. But we need to recognize, church, that this is a difficult road. We are calling many who are same-sex attracted, who are gay. If we call them to faith in Jesus Christ, we're calling them to, if God will not heal the orientation, we're calling them to live a chaste, celibate, single life. We talked about the perks of that, the joys of that, undivided devotion to the Lord, that it's a great way, and that a single life for the Christian reveals the sufficiency of the gospel. But here's a part that the church needs to hear. Emily and I went and heard Rosaria Butterfield speak a few years ago, and um, she spent about half of the time talking about sexual orientation and how it's a post-enlightenment, like 19th century construct that we identify ourselves as our sexual identity. This is who I am. And she's saying that that's a construct that's relatively recent. She spent about half the time talking about that. She's a very intellectual thinker, and then she spent half the talk talking about hospitality. 
It just seems so odd to me, right? Half of it was about this like really heady stuff. I only understood about half of it. And then she talked about hospitality. Have an open door and love people. Invite your neighborhood in, right? And, but here's what she said about it. And here, here's what she, why she said it was important. She said, can I tell you something? The homosexual community knows how to do hospitality. They are good at it. She said, I was a part of it. We were great. There was every night of the week in our city, there was an open door somewhere for any person who was gay, who was having a hard time, who was feeling lonely, who was sick, who needed help, and they knew where they could go and be fed and loved. And here's what we cannot do in the church. We cannot say, you can't be gay. You need to live a celibate life. And then we walk away with our neat and tidy family and close the door. What we're being called to as a church is to be the most hospitable people on the planet. That if there is a call that we recognize is difficult, that we embrace it and we say, we are going to do this well. We are going to do deep spiritual friendship well. Scott Sauls summarized it this way, what if we reaffirm that being unmarried and chaste, like Paul and Jesus, is a noble and fruitful calling, not a curse? And what if we reaffirm that the call to singleness is far better, since it frees people to devote themselves fully to God's concerns? And what if we embraced a renewed vision for the church as a surrogate family where everyone, single and married and divorced, hetero-attracted and same-sex-attracted, finds opportunity for spiritual friendship as deep as Jonathan and David, with long-term love and loyalty rivaling that of a man and a woman? God's word is not always easy. In fact, it's extremely difficult. And yet when you embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you will find that there, it is the most deeply satisfying, joy-inducing truth on the planet. So I want to conclude our time here this morning by, 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 by saying this, and perhaps you've heard it before. Look, you do not go to hell for being gay. You don't go to hell for being gay. You know how I know that? Because you don't go to heaven for being straight. The only thing that keeps any of us from God's grace is refusing to acknowledge our brokenness and Christ's lordship. The only thing on the planet that keeps us from God's amazing grace is to refuse to acknowledge our brokenness and Christ's Lordship. So my plea to all in the room are the words of Jesus. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And I just want to say it again. I am so sorry for how we have not preached truth and grace and embraced and drawn in as a church. We ask for your forgiveness. Over the last nine weeks, we have talked about God's design for flourishing. We talked about masculinity and said, you know what? We're going to be bold and we're going to say that there are two genders and they're male and female. And we're going to say that some distinction comes out of those. And so we called men this fall not to abuse on the one hand and not to abdicating on the other. We called them to live as servants, laying down their lives, protecting and bearing primary responsibility, the headship in the home and the church, that they would lay lives down to both protect the home and the flock. We said this fall that a design to flourish for femininity was not prideful usurping on the one hand and not being a doormat on the other but being all that God created you to be in your equality and your unique giftings to complement your spouse, to be a complement in the church family as women. And we said that marriage is actually a picture of Christ 
and the church. That is not to be taken lightly, that we will invest in our marriages. We will repent in our marriages. We will work on our marriages because we recognize that they are a picture of Christ and the church, the ultimate marriage. And we said that singleness is not a curse. Singleness is a gift. And it reveals the sufficiency of Jesus and it reveals, it reveals like no other circumstance an anticipation of the marriage, the eternal marriage of which every single Christian will be a part. And we said this fall this. If we're gonna put our identity on anything, if we're gonna place an identity, this is who I am, if we're going to place an identity on anything as Christians, it's going to be an identity in the gospel, our Christ identity. Our identity will be in our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, above all, and it will have power, it will have oversight, it will, have, um, it will influence every other thing about us. So we see, in God's word, a design for flourishing. It's not easy, but will you give yourself to it? Will you live in a way that points to the flourishing that God designed so that we can be a beacon, we can be a hope, we can be a light to a hurting, dying world? I'm going to invite our prayer team members to get in place and our worship band to come on forward. Why don't we close our eyes for a few minutes and spend some time in prayer? Lord Jesus, I'm just, I'm just overwhelmed this morning that, uh, that you saved a wretch like me. I'm overwhelmed. And my heart is so for every broken person, every sinner like me, to encounter the life-changing gospel, life-transforming gospel, the good news that you do not condemn, but you draw us in. And then you give us the strength by your spirit to overcome every proclivity that we have, every fallen nature in us through your strength, with your help among a community of believers who are striving to do the same and help us along. Lord, where we have sinned at this, we repent. And we need you for strength. We pray that you would make us a light. We pray that Central Community Church would be known as a loving place to the LGBT community. That we would lead with love. Help us, Lord. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen.